Welcome to Beyond My Day Job. I'm Lonnie Miller, and you're joining a dedicated season solely focused on the behind-the-scenes aspects of the craft beer industry. In this season, titled The Craft Beer Inquiries, I'm bringing you stories of how businesses make money in a maturing, crowded, and highly cost-capital industry. In this episode, we get a great overview of the U.S. craft beer market from Bart Watson, the Brewers Association's chief economist. So sit back and relax, and let's nerd out on beer trends. Here we go. My name is Bart Watson. I'm chief economist at the Brewers Association, and I'm talking to you today from Boulder, Colorado. What are you fundamentally about in terms of what you watch and look within this amazing industry? Yeah, so, you know, the Brewers Association is the national not-for-profit trade association for America's small and independent craft brewers. So that means we we promote and protect small brewers all across the country. And I'm the, the data part of that. So, um, you know, where data and market analysis, you know, comes in to promote and protect, that's what I do. And that means tracking all things beer and small brewing, um, including supply chain, including production trends, including market trends, and and translating those both for, for members on the, you know, promote and protect side, but also then policymakers as well. Um, so I get to do a lot of cool things with beer data and, and track a lot of different parts of the market because um, I'm, I'm an army of one over here at the uh, Brewers Association. So uh, lots of things to keep track of. One just kind of before we get into kind of the market profile that I want you to um, share with us, but your members for the Brewers Association, what are some of the actions that you tend to hear feedback on that they take with the research that you publish? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's varied. And uh, one of the reasons we do such a wide range of, of research is that they, they want to do different things. But, you know, I mean, some of them I've already hinted at, you know, kind of we're, we want to emphasize, you know, we're thinking about some new styles for next year, you know, which ones we might have more traction in the marketplace. Um, you know, brewers in recent years, a lot of them have been making a, a transition from bottles to cans. So, you know, how big should we bet on that? Or, um, and, and I try to be very clear, you know, our, our data is never going to tell a brewer the answer. And I, I try to be very clear to brewers that I should never be making these decisions for you. Um, but hopefully our data provides them context in which they can, they can better understand the decisions they're making, the pros and cons, the risks and challenges. Um, and, and so, you know, I think it's the everyday business decisions that, that every brewery is going to have to make. Now, hopefully they have some better data to make those choices. And you cover solely the United States, right? That is your geographical, um, you know, frame, right? For all the Yeah, we do a little bit of international. Uh, You know, we do have a a fair number of members internationally, mostly in Canada. And I I occasionally do give a Canadian data presentation. But, you know, our data competency and and my knowledge is certainly much more U.S.-centric. And and when I watch international markets, it's only because sometimes those are good leading indicators uh, of stuff that might come. You know, non-elk is a good example really hit Europe before it came to the U.S. Got it. Um, but yeah, we're U.S. focused and, and that's our primary research. Okay. Issue. All right. Got it. Okay. So let me start off with the question just to kind of, um, I think it's important for people to understand the landscape when we talk about the craft beer, you know, segments. Um, just maybe just in general, like define, kind of rattle off some of the segments that the industry um, identifies itself with within the beer industry. So there are different, you know, synonyms and phrases, but I'm just curious how you kind of, you know, simplify it in terms of the, the market segments for the beer industry. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we track craft brewers, so small and independent brewers. So, I mean, that's kind of the piece we track. 
Um, within craft, you know, the market segments that, that we would typically use would be a regional craft brewery, so a production brewery that's 15,000 barrels or more, a microbrewery that's 15,000 barrels or less, but still in that production distributing model, um, and then two more service-focused business models, brew pubs, which are going to be brewery restaurants and have that significant food service piece, and tap rooms, which are going to be, again, more service-oriented on-site, but, uh, but without that brew pub component. When you step out of that, then there's other market segments that, that people would talk about, you know, imports, obviously just being import, which has really become synonymous with Mexican import in the U.S. market, mm. um, you know, uh, over the years. Um, but, you know, there's also different price tiers that people talk about. So premium is, is kind of the classic one that used to be the high end of the beer market, which is why it has that name, but the, the biggest brands. And then a lot of things are talked about in relation to that. So, you know, sub premium or value or things that are priced below that super premium, um, you know, is, is priced above that. Um, and then you have other kind of, you know, tangential segments like flavor malt beverages or hard seltzer that, that are also in the marketplace. Got it. So it's kind of price points, you know, distribution size, region, you know, flavor, you know, you know, kind of, you know, the grade that they're, you know, positioning themselves at with their. Yeah. And you're, 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 you're drawing out very well that, you know, within the industry, we often talk about business model a little bit more than what they make because craft brewers tend to have a kind of a similar, what they make production profile and outside with the large brewers, it's talked about much more in price point segment. Okay. So kind of the, you know, in my mind, as we've been exploring this season, it's this fundamental hypothesis that this is a really and intensively competitive, you know, let alone capital heavy industry. So I'm just, you know, really excited to kind of, you know, have you help us quantify kind of the size of the market and how do people think about this when, you know, maybe we only may see the, the tap room handles or the, uh, you know, the cans and bottles at our local, um, you know, supermarket for craft beer. So, you know, it's a competitive U.S. market, I'll, I'll assume, but you can correct me if not but how big's the market for craft beer really? What are we talking about? Yeah, and the 2020 numbers are a little bit different because 2020 was a very unique year, but um, you know, 2019, 2020, uh, you know, craft brewers have 12 to 13% of the US market by volume. Uh, the US market is a big market. Um, we measure things in barrels uh, because that's how they're taxed and, and we don't like to change stuff. So this is the way the US beer market's been measured since the civil war, but we're a 200 million barrel beer market. A barrel is 31 gallons, so you can start doing the math of, you know, we're, we're talking about hundreds of millions of gallons or, you know, billions of gallons of, uh, of beer that are sold. Um, in terms of dollar sales, uh, craft brewing is, is bigger in its share. Um, so the, the U.S. beer market is roughly $100 billion okay. um, in terms of retail consumer sales. So what consumers actually spend on beer um, and craft brewers have dropped a little bit um, in, in 2020. Prior to that, they had about a quarter of those dollar sales. And, hmm. and that's that's higher both because craft is an average price point that is higher, uh, but also craft has much higher share on premise or, or on trade as it's sometimes referred to in Europe. Um, so craft brewers just do better in bars and restaurants, not to mention their own breweries um, than they do in grocery and package stores. And, and that's a higher retail margin. So um, that's why that dollar share number is so much higher than the volume share. Got it, because that margin helps as it's sold in, you know, um, restaurants, for example. So, okay. Exactly. And if, you know, craft brewers only have, you know, you know, 10 shares, actually slightly below that of, you know, package stores, but they have 30 share of on-premise, then, then you can start to see some of that disconnect. Got it. Got it. Okay. Let me, you hit on, and all of us certainly globally have recognized what 2020 and, you know, case counts are starting to spike up with the Delta variant a little bit in regional, in region areas. Um, 
just kind of big picture, I'm just curious and how often you get asked or what the data is showing. Did people drink less beer during COVID? I mean, no, did, no, they didn't, they didn't drink less beer. They drank beer very differently, though. So what we saw last year was not necessarily a huge change in what people drank, but a big change in where they drank it. Um, and, and this shift was tough for craft brewers because as I just talked about, you know, they tend to do much better in bars and restaurants than they do in grocery stores. So, you know, what we saw last year is that people drank about the same amount of beer, but they went to grocery and package stores a lot more. And they pretty much bought at those places what they had bought before, which meant a little bit less craft overall. And they went to bars and restaurants less. And they basically bought when they did go the same stuff that they bought before. Uh, but that meant a little bit, you know, kind of worse outcomes for craft in general. Um, so, you know, in, in the beer industry, we talk about this as a channel shift. You know, we, we right. saw the channels, you know, shift last year and where the volume was. And um, that was in general bad for brewers that rely on draft sales. Um, and it was good for brewers that were on package sales. So, you know, there were certainly brewers that made out, you know, in positive. And overall, you know, maybe, maybe we sold a little bit more beer, you know, in total in the U.S. last year. But it was pretty similar hmm. going into to what we would have expected prior to the year. Okay. All right. So would the first, say, half of 2021 or maybe the first quarter of 2021, did it volumize at the aggregate level? feel pretty similar to 2020 in terms of yeah you know i think that. what we're starting to see you know and there's always some some odd months where, where you know we cycled some weird months where you know the the shipments did change a little bit over the course of the year because you know a lot of beer had to come out of bars and restaurants for a couple of months and then we had to restock stuff and we had to stock up grocery stores but you know generally we're seeing this year look look similar maybe a little bit better um uh, than last year Con total consumer spending this year on food and beverage is much much higher than it was last year okay. people saved a lot last year and so they may have a little bit more money to spend this year yeah um, on average obviously everybody's mileage may may vary but you know again this year what we're seeing is we're seeing that that tide that shifted out last year and that channel shift it's starting to shift back and so um, a lot of this year is kind of the trends of last year in reverse, if that makes sense. Got it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. The upside of the U, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Um, any winners that you saw um, because of COVID, so to speak, in terms of any, you know, uh, volume or, or dollar segments that that really took off or stood out because of You know, COVID? I think the, 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 the segments that did better during COVID, quote unquote, were ones that, that rely more on package sales. So, you know, hard seltzer, you know, yeah. really boomed last year and- um, you know, how much that's the, the functional parts of the beverage versus where it's sold, I think is hard to entangle, but, um, you know, certainly a lot more, uh, uh, you know, beer volume being sold at, at package stores was good for, for segments like that, um, as it was for many of the big brands, uh, you know, I think that the tend to over-index there. We also saw in general that people were buying slightly larger pack sizes. They wanted to go to the store a little bit less. So, um, we saw some volume shift into to 12 packs in craft and overall into 24 and 30 packs. And so brands that were available in those, I think, saw a little bit of a benefit. Um, and then, you know, the flip side of that was, you know, brands that were, were draft heavy, you know, draft only. Those are the ones that were the losers because they weren't able to pivot and, you know, customers weren't as used to buying them in that package form. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, you mentioned, and, you know, I, I brought up earlier too, just in terms of what the industry relies on to kind of, you know, operate itself. Any just kind of general comments? I, I am curious from your vantage point about the, what the capital that's required or just give us a flavor for what a brewer, you know, whether it's a single site pub room or, you know, big regional players, what's the capital that these folks have to deal with and manage, you know, to kind of be successful. 
Yeah, yeah, it's significant. I mean, you know, the, the entry point for even small breweries has gone up over time. You know, we used to use, you know, you're, you're starting with a half million guaranteed. It's, you know, it's probably more like a million now, um, you know, on top of just kind of all, all the things that it takes to run a business because stainless steel is, is expensive and it's more expensive when it's been molded into specialized form, you know, for brew houses and fermenters and things like that. Um, you know, there's often a lot of ongoing capital and, and cash requirements as you get a business up and running. Um, you know, you're often, you have to buy all of the ingredients to make the beer, which you're often selling to a distributor on, on some sort of, you know, terms uh, before you're getting any money back. So you've got to be able to kind of, you know, front load the cash to, hmm. to pay for stuff before you're getting paid. Um, and, it, you know, it really scales up. I mean, you know, for small brewers have found a niche precisely because they've they've been able to, um, you know, sell at, at very high margin, you know, particularly in their own tap rooms. Um, but if you move up, I mean, the brewing business is a scale business. And, and so those capital and, you know, requirements scale as well. There's more equipment. You're, you're typically, you're going to have more complexity. You're going to be buying, you know, more pieces to fit into what is really a manufacturing business. And so, you know, tens or, you know, even hundreds of millions as you get to really large facilities, you know, is not unusual to, to spend on a brewery. Have you ever heard from some of your members, uh, uh, maybe a gross rule of thumb about, you know, kind of a period of time for payback, you know, from setting up from cradle to, Hey, I'm starting to be in the black now. Um, any, any horizons of time that you've heard people say regularly that they start seeing, you know, positive cash flow? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and there's no one answer simply because kind of where you want to get is going to determine what that, that flipping point is. And, you know, I mean, the rule of thumb is growth is expensive. So if you want to keep growing, you may not hit the black for a long, long time. Right, right. Uh, you know, the breweries that, you know, the breweries that are, you know, featured in these fastest growing breweries in the country probably have never turned a profit uh, because they're consistently investing, you know, outward in, in Salesforce and, you know, um, investing in these new markets and new production capacity that that means you know you typically as a brewery don't really start turning a profit until you slow down okay and and for small breweries that could be pretty quick right you know you, we hear of breweries who turn a profit in their first year or two hmm. um, but those are normally the breweries that they want to sell 300 500 barrels they want to sell it all direct and they're happy once they get to that point and staying at that point okay. or you know waiting a year or two building some capital back up then putting in the candy line or whatever it is but um you know, it can be a long time before breweries grow. And and one thing you see too, is you see breweries that that they have, you know, I, I forget who who described this, maybe it was Lester Jones, maybe it was Scott Metzger, who thinks about these things very sharply, but it's kind of little profit islands where you get to a place where you're in the black and then you got to decide, do I want to do that next expansion, that next in capital investment? And then the next swim to the next profit island, you're going to be in the red the entire time. <laughs> um, so until you grow to that next level and you kind of pay back all those investments, um, you know, it can be very challenging. So it's, you know, I, I think people see the beer industry, they see all these breweries, they think it's kind of always profitable and always great. And, and there's a lot of breweries out there that the numbers are, are tougher at any individual point in time than I think people might expect. There's a brewer I spoke to in Northern Michigan and he had a quote, he goes, you're either growing or you're dying. And I said, so what's that really mean? He said, I've got to look for, you know, he goes, and now I've got to look at seltzer. And he said, I, the non-alc that you meant, non-alcoholic, right? Flavor. So mm -hmm types of variety because you want more family you know you want kids to be able to come in to the you know brew pub to be able to enjoy it with you know the parents or whatever so he it, it was a tension point though for him but he said he goes you're either growing or you're dying so he seems like he's in that same you know he's in the swim to the next island like you said yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah and you know there are brewers who can manage that holding in one place but it's 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 challenging right because it means you've 
you're not getting, you know, pressured by other new competitors who are coming in and, and holding, you know, treading water is, is very, very difficult. We see some brewers do it, but um, you know, it's a, it's a challenging business once you achieve some scale. What are some other financial factors that brewers have to think about, or maybe, maybe not financial, but just kind of other major market forces that help define their success or failure. If you think about kind of maybe at a macro level. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, getting, getting, finding the right distributor partner is always, you know, really important and finding somebody who you're aligned with on how much you're willing to invest, you know, in, in time and money um, into brands, you know, certainly for, for breweries on the profit side, um, you know, kind of getting your uh, production set up right with, um, kind of your size. So having the right production mix for, for the size of brew you are um, and making sure that, you know, you, you are selling, you know, profitable products in the right categories. Yeah. Um, you know, the cost side is, is also one that it really matters and one that's put a lot of breweries under pressure in the last year and a half uh, because the, the pricing in the marketplace that you can get isn't always tightly, you know, consumers don't know what hops cost or what barley costs or what, you know, uh, cans cost. And so, um, you know, that can be another place that the brewers, you know, struggle is, you know, how am I setting my price re- relative to the market? And does that work given the raw materials that I have and the scale that I have? Okay. Um, something that's been fascinating to me is kind of getting your brand out in the wild beyond the tap room, let's say. So the distribution, you know, fun, well, quote unquote fun. Um, curious your comments about what you see brewers in terms of maybe some of their strategies and some of the things that they do to kind of go, you know, and expand essentially, but, you know, I want to get it on the local, you know, regional, you know, grocery store shelf, or I want, you know, this chain of local restaurants to carry me. Um, any comments about how you see the distribution strategies, um, make someone, you know, better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, first I'd say there's a million different distribution strategies. And so brewers should be, you know, when brewers ask me about this or they're starting to think about distribution, I mean, the first thing that, that I always ask them is, you know, what are you really trying to achieve here? You know, what, why are you going into distribution? Um, I think a lot of them are shocked at how much lower the margins are in distribution um, than, than they are in your own tap room. Um, there's a reason the tap rooms and brew pubs have proliferated um, that the, the margins work a little bit better. And, and from there, then it's, you know, the, the strategies that are successful, I think, are the ones that that are really thought through and brewers understand kind of why they're going into certain channels and why they're distributing where they are. You know, picking your geographic locations as well as your retail channels is very important. So, you know, we often see a lot of brewers, just the smallest scale, distributing to bars and restaurants kind of in a radius around the taproom mm-hmm. or group pub, not necessarily because that makes the money, but because it's a good form of marketing. And that, you know, when somebody tries your beer on tap at the, their favorite restaurant, they say, oh, that was good. I should go visit that brewery on, right. uh, you know, this weekend. Um, you know, moving up, finding kind of those local, you know, one of the big questions always for brewers is, am I doing chain or are I doing independent? Um, you know, independent is going to be easier, but, you know, you're selling in one-offs, right? You got to you know, check each one off as you, you grow and grow and grow. And so, you know, it's more hand selling, whereas chain, you know, you're going to get a lot more volume right away, but you got to be able to maintain that volume or you're going to, you know, lose those shelf placements. And yeah. um, you're probably, gonna, again, going to be dealing with larger scale and lower margin and some some more headaches and hassles. So there's no one size fits all. Uh, brewers are going to have different ones based on where their brand is. I mean, that's another good point. Like the more differentiated your brand is, probably the further it can travel, the more unique it is. Whereas if you just have another local IPA, unless it's the best in the world, it probably can't travel as far. And so you may need to go denser and deeper with your distribution rather than going farther afield. So 
there are a million things to think about. And, and at the end of the day, I think the best distributor distribution strategies are the ones that, that really are thought through the best relative to the brand and the ones that are communicated with and worked with with the distributor partners that align with what they want as well. Because right. if you have a brand that doesn't sit well in a distributor's portfolio, it's probably not going to move as well as if you have picked your distributor such that you solve a problem for them and you're taking them to a place they want to go as well as what it's doing for your brand. Yeah. So you have to think about the distributor's product mix that they want and, you know, do you fit that niche or fill a gap on, on what they want to put on shelves? Or, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, a distributor that if you want to be in fine dining, a distributor that has brands that, you know, kill it in convenience stores, you know, is not going to do as good a job for you as one that, you know, carries specialty products that are already in those fine dining places you want to be. Got it. Okay. So distribution makes me think of geography. And I know the Brewers Association has got some really cool visual interactive and you got maps and you kind of show in there, but just maybe I had to take a step back. So what are the hot spots in the U.S.? What, you know, what are the iconic, we've got some folks outside of the U.S. that will hear this. Where, where are the hot spots for craft beer in the United States, top of mind? Yeah. And, and you can do this in different ways, right? You know, somebody's producing right now a, you know, top 10 beer places in the U.S. list, and it's going to look very, very different than the last one that was produced. So. You know, the first thing to say is where there are people, there are breweries. So, you know, the, the states that have the most breweries are the states that have the most people. So, you know, if you look at the top, you know, the top five states, it's going to look very similar to the top five states in population. So yeah, California. California has a ton of breweries. New York has a ton of breweries. Texas has a ton of breweries, et cetera. Um, you know, in terms of, of density, um, you know, Vermont's number one per capita and certainly a very unique place, as we hmm. see for a lot of New England, Maine, New Hampshire also have, you know, a fair number of breweries. So that's that's one dense pocket. Um, you know, Western Michigan is often a place people point to as, you know, a very dense pocket, you know, centered around kind of Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo. Um, all of the West Coast cities, well, not all of them, but, you know, the, the three kind of West Coast cities that people often identify are Seattle, Portland, and San Diego, right. which LA gets left, left, left off those lists and maybe shouldn't anymore. LA has a lot of breweries, obviously a little bit more spread out just because of what LA looks like. Um, and then I'm calling you from one that I think I, you know, I have to add the, the front range of Colorado, you know, Fort Collins down to Colorado Springs with, with Boulder, Denver in the middle has a um, extreme density of breweries. But one of the coolest things about the explosion in the last 10 years is that there's lots of places that I didn't just mention that have real densities of breweries, you know, uh, Western North Carolina, not to mention the triangle, you know, has an incredible density and, in, you know, community of breweries. Yeah, Asheville. Yeah, parts of, you know, parts of Virginia, you know, Richmond area, you know, really has exploded in breweries recently. So almost every part of the U.S. now, as long as there are some people there, you know, really does have interesting pockets. And, um, you know, I've written a lot about this, you know, too, kind of in the, the, the urban or rural geography. But, you know, we're seeing lots of places in the map get filled in. So uh, you don't get to almost 9,000 breweries in the U.S. without having lots of places that, that have really cool brewery scenes. Yeah, certainly the population's not growing as fast as the... <laughs> <laughs> the outlets per se. Yeah, we in the auto industry we say the same thing. Cars sell where the people are. So exactly. And, um, little fun fact, the convertible sales, they call it the smile of the US because the mm -hmm. affluence on the coast and the convertible sales and take rate tends to be along the coastal regions. Interesting. I like that. I might steal that. <laughs> okay. So um let's kind of do a little bit of prognostication here, you know, crystal ball time. So some trends and if you want to elaborate on some trends that are starting to emerge now, but you know, two, three years out in the U.S. Uh, craft um, beer market, what are you seeing? What do you, what's, you know, some of the chips that you uh, would place in terms of trends of consumption or popularity? 
Yeah, so so I'll do my contractual duty and say IPA is still still going to be here. Um, you know, it, we're, we're starting to see a few signs that the IPA juggernaut is not quite what it was, but you know, it's still the most popular style and it's still adding share faster than any other style. So, so let, let me add, sorry to interrupt. Why? Yeah. Why is IPA so pervasively and consistently popular? Because it's so polarizing as a flavor experience to many people. I think one reason is that IPA has become a, a platform for innovation as much as it has become one singular style and that the, the polarization and flavor that you describe is, it, there are now entry points into IPA at almost every flavor. When you have you know hazy IPAs that are very, very low on bitterness and have residual sweetness and you know all the way to still classic you know, West Coast, you know, piney bitter um, things that, you know, I, there's an IPA for almost everyone. Um, okay. I also think it just has become associated for good and for bad. I mean, there's lots of people who you'll see complain online, like, oh, I hate IPA. I walk into, you know, the bar and it's only IPAs. And, uh, but for better or worse, it's it's become synonymous with craft beer in many ways. And, right. and that's right. offered, I think, opportunities. And, and some of its growth now is just, you know, marketing too, right? You know, the, the joke of brewers a few years ago was, you know, you slap IPA on it, immediate profits ahead, you know? So, um <laughs> reasons for its growth and some of that is that people chase growth and it's growing so it continues to grow okay um, i interrupted yeah sorry Keep... yeah so, so that out of the way with with that diversion um you know i one of the most interesting things in the last few years is i think we've seen a lot more things grow so that the prognosticating becomes difficult because we, we see a more fractured market but if i were to identify two buckets right now one is that craft is finally i think really built a logic around lighter things um, that, you know, loggers, but also blonde nails, gold nails, colches, and kind of a craft spin on what has always been the dominant part of the beer market, which is, you know, more light, crisp, refreshing, um, and, and maybe now with craft spin, a little bit more flavor and local ingredients, whatever it is, um, you know, a little bit, a little bit, you know, kind of a spin on style. Um, that, that market does seem to be growing, and I think will continue to grow as, as millennials, as kind of a core graph, craft demographic age. Um, you know, and want to stay in, but with something a little bit lower ABV. So, so that's one. The other is is the kind of opposite from the hoppy stuff that we just talked about. But what I would call fuller flavored, but not hoppy. Um, and and there, you know, fruit and sour seem to be two things that are that are interesting that a lot of craft brewers are playing with. Okay. Uh, you know, the sours are more kind of the the quick sours, you know, than than the slow, you know, barrel aged sours. Um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, and and I think. You know that blends with some of the broader beverage alcohol trends that we're seeing. You know, it, you can kind of play in that space and be close to seltzer and be close to, you know, ready to drinks and and other things. But you know, things that are that are not what people would maybe traditionally think of as as beer, um, but you know, are still very much in the beer category and rooted there. But you know, right. fruit, sour, um, and kind of flavorful, but without that hop that you're right is polarizing, and some people aren't looking for. Do you see demographic or let's let me ask you specifically? So I'm gonna myth bust maybe if you have data if not it's cool so uh myth bust for me a gender preference for beer flavors and types any any observations yeah you know and i'm always very uh i i always try to to both present this data but also acknowledge that you know, the averages don't tell you that much and they don't tell you anything about an individual person so sure. you know what's the most popular beer style amongst women it's ipa because everything you know ipa is so popular with everybody that, law of numbers yes you know, men, you know men may overweight there but you know law of numbers says you know women like ipa too um you know one reason i've picked i picked the, the kind of light sour fruit stuff is that those score very very highly when we look at consumer preference stuff for 21 to 34 mm. um and across both genders and looking at kind of the 21 to 34 year olds yeah 
flavors are going to, you know, mature. Uh, people want different stuff in their 40s than they did in their, you know, 20s. Um, but we do see 21 to 34 year old and, and better gender balance there, which I think is a good marker of, of potential growth success. Um, the, the crisp blogger stuff, I mean, that's more across the board, um, both in age and gender. Um, hmm. So that's another one that I think has the potential to grow. And and there, you know, one of the reasons I would prognosticate that growing is, is less demographics and more history. Okay. Like, like crisp and refreshing have been dominant parts of the beer market for a long time. Um, and so as craft brewers start to figure that out, it makes sense that, that that's going to be something that is part of their larger strategy. Got it. Okay. That's in, that's insightful. It makes me think of <laughs> that, that light crisp and just that kind of, you know, baseline, right. You know, that's, that's like a midsize car. It's very transient. Everyone experiences a sedan of some sort, you know, in their vehicle owning, you know, experience, but it's, it's always there. Right. Yeah. But, you know, and, and then it goes. And, and there's different levels of it too. And, you know, right. craft are going to put their spins on it and they're going to add, you know, limes to some of them. And they're going to, you know, they're going to have the, the kind of higher end ones that, you know, maybe as you get a little bit older, but you want to stay kind of lower ABV, you can do. So um, I, I like that metaphor. And I think it, it's a good one for, for why I think that's a vehicle that can, can really drive craft work. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, any, anything else, any other, you mentioned earlier in terms of early indicators or indicators from, from other regions in the globe. Um, I'll just kind of, as we're winding down, um, any signals that you tend to track more closely that do um, bode well for, um, you know, whatever consumption trends here in the U S with craft beer. What yeah, you know, I mean, I think um, I think we see, you know, kind of in all the developed parts of the world that the interest in, in flavor and local and kind of, you know, niches is more important. Um, you know, I think that bodes well for craft overall. I think it makes it harder to predict kind of what parts of craft because you know, I think we're seeing craft to a certain extent do a little bit what wine did where, you know, people get into it and then they want to explore some mm. of the, you know, the sub areas and they want to learn about different stuff and um, so it's become a little bit harder to say, oh, this is going to grow, you know, and kind of dominantly because lots of little things are, are growing in different ways right now. Um, I mentioned non-alcohol already. You know, one of the things our consumer work shows us is that ABV is becoming much more important to consumers. Um, and interestingly, in both directions, right? So and just for clarification, ABV, ABV is the alcohol by volume. Thank you very much. Uh, alcohol, you know, by volume or by weight are, are often going to be listed on, on beer products and, um, we see it inter interestingly be more important in both directions. So people are saying high ABV is an important attribute to me and low ABV is an important attribute. And I think what, what's happening there is that you know, consumers are just a little bit more aware of, of alcohol by volume, where it fits in the occasion, what they want in the particular setting that they want it in. Um, and so, you know, this is driving, it, you know, it's funny to say we're simultaneously seeing growth in non-elk and in double IPA right now. So, and, and that's part of the fractured market that, that hopefully I've been hinting at. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some global trends tell us that, you know, particularly that low and no elk, I think, has has the potential to grow a lot. That, okay. uh, you know, Gen Z, too, seems to be a little bit just more interested in that and, um, you know, having a different relationship with alcohol, not 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 drinking, but, you know, just maybe thinking about ABV a little bit differently and um, maybe drink it a little bit more moderately when they're out and about. Maybe it's the social media part of the generation. Um, so I think that's a part of the market that we'll continue to see grow and that, that craft brewers can play effectively in is that, that non and low elk part. Okay. So, um, just a kind of a classic cliche, but classic economics concept here. So I'm curious what you, if you've got thoughts or if you've seen this actually play out. So let's talk about the substitution effect. So beer, wine versus, you know, the spirits, hard liquor. Um, have you seen 
shifts where, you know, it's a, let's call it a zero sum game. If those are the three pieces of the pie and I know I'm being a little simplified here, but um, with what you're tracking with, with craft beer, and I know it's a subset, but are you seeing it take from the other two pieces, you know, in terms of wine um, or spirits and hard liquor, or are you actually seeing it, you know, um, shrink a little bit relative to those areas if you have data? Yeah, um, they, they very much are substitutes. So kind of starting at the top level, um, you know, per capita beverage alcohol consumption is pretty static. Um, so, you know, we, we do see changes over time based on average age and income and economic effects and things like that. But, you know, you can predict pretty much how much Americans are going to drink uh, year over year. And so if one goes up, another one has to go down. Um, in the overall industry in recent years, that's been hard liquor going up and beer going down. Um, this has mostly been at the expense of kind of big premium light brands. So, you know, the Bud Lights and Coors Lights and the Miller Lights of the world losing volume and spirits brands gaining. Um, craft is interesting because it, it very much overlaps with everything. Um, you know, in general, craft has been gaining share um, and so has been taking from everywhere. But craft, you know, when you, you draw the kind of ins and outs is very much both in and out with everything. Um, and craft drinkers are... Um, you know, the, I, I've been using the term, you know, omnibibulous, uh, you know, the most kind of, they drink everything and they, they have lots of interactions and a majority of craft drinkers drink some other type of beverage alcohol weekly, uh, weekly craft drinkers drink other things weekly. Um, and so I think there, there is interaction and there's going to be more. Um, one thing I've been talking to craft brewers a lot is that the, the rise of ready to drink cocktails, hmm. um, I think we'll have a stronger interaction with craft than say seltzer has. We, in the data, I haven't seen a ton of interaction between seltzer and craft. Um, I think there's some, but you know, it's not as big as between seltzer and light beer, for instance. Okay. Um, but I think ready to drink cocktails might play in those occasions a little bit more. The flavors, I think, you know, kind of bigger, bolder flavors match with kind of craft demographics and occasion a little bit better. So this is a long-winded way of saying craft is probably net pulled volume out from from wine and spirits in recent okay. years i think i think especially with younger generations and price point you know you go into a, a bar and it's a 12 dollar cocktail and a six dollar you know pint of good local craft beer right um craft win, i win some of those jump balls for sure right um but then it, you know it's more complicated and there's lots of ins and outs you know when you look at the consumer flows that's a great yeah it's a great profile bart i like that just from a standpoint because you know like you said seems relatively static for total alcoholic consumption per se and hopefully people are always being responsible with this but it always carries where the win and loss is in terms of you know this segment that we're talking about for its growth very yeah, cool. you know if you want to get really into economics too i mean the <laughs> biggest reason for that overall shift you know less talking about craft and more overall beer is that the beer has taken on a lot more price than wine and spirits so if you look at this over the last you know decade beer relatively has actually become slightly more expensive controlling for inflation and wine and spirits on average have become much cheaper. Now, I'm not talking again about that, you know, $15 cocktail you're buying at a fancy cocktail bar. But if you look at that kind of total, you know, off-premise price, uh, both spirits and wine have become a lot cheaper uh, relative to, to beer. And I think that's the biggest place we've seen the shift is the people who are the most price conscious um, have, have shifted there because of that. Interesting. Interesting. And do you think some of that relative pr price premium is because a lot of new entrants or the desire to, you know, keep a margin because, you know, they've got a limited, you know, production. So it kind of equates back to having to catch or, you know, pull in what they can off of a smaller volume. Uh, on the beer side, I think it has come primarily from beer companies prioritizing profits over volume. Okay. 
um, that they have chosen to protect that margin over, you know, keeping the volume. Um, and you can see this pretty clearly in the data, um, you know, particularly when Anheuser-Busch InBev and, and Molson Coors, um, which at the time was Miller Coors in the U.S., uh, were both formed in the late 2000s. That, you know, the price had been trending down a little bit prior to that, took a jump after that, and has held steady or increased since then. And, you know, so to say something in their credit, Anheuser-Busch InBev has been one of the most profitable consumer goods companies in the world okay. uh, since, since they bought you know, Anheuser-Busch in the U.S. So um, it's hard to argue with their decisions in some way. Right. Yeah, they're doing something right <laughs> at that scale. They're, they're, they're okay. <laughs> uh, Bart, any other um, worthwhile notables um, on the craft beer market that you want to share before we wind down? I mean, you know, we could talk for, for hours. Uh, I would, I would, <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the most interesting things in, in recent years has been the rise of the tap room and the brew pub model and kind of the greater percentage of beer being sold directly at breweries. And, you know, some of the reasons for that, I think, align with how Americans want to drink more generally these days that, you know, bars purely for drinking are on their way out and places that you can go and experience something and also have a drink are on their way in. And, um, I think tap rooms and brew pubs have, you know, really came across along at the right time for that uh, because they they are a little bit more than just going and having a beer. You're, sure. you're learning something, you're interacting, you're you're finding something out about styles, you're maybe getting a tour, you're pairing it with food, you're you're doing a little bit more than just kind of you know having a shot and a beer after work. Yes. Um, so um, so that's something to mention, and and that's been really helpful too in the pandemic because craft brewers have been able to use that as a place to pivot and to sell beer to go. And, you know, that was really one reason that craft brewers did so well in the past year and a half. And, you know, I'm putting well in, in, in air quotes, because, you know, it was still a tough year for, for most small brewery businesses, right. but they certainly saw their sales held up, you know, much better than, than bars and restaurants generally. Um, and a lot of that was because the, the tap room, the brew pub was really a, a hub, a community center where they could still sell beer to go and, and keep that business flowing. So many people I've talked to for this season have been very much akin towards the pairing and the ability to have, you know, whether it's just cliche bar food or, you know, others. And, you know, here regionally where I'm at, in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, really enjoyed the food truck scene, which when I was in Michigan, I wasn't around that. And I'm starting to talk to my contacts on the west side of Michigan, like you said, and you know, that's that they're showing up because right, it's a win-win, right? For a couple of different small businesses. Yeah, we saw a shift, you know, I started writing about this probably five years ago where, you know, the brew pub was really the dominant service model in craft beer and the combination of new laws that allowed small manufacturing breweries to sell direct and and business model innovations like the the food truck, which, you know, mean you can get food to your patrons, but you don't have to build out a kitchen or worry about you know, hiring kitchen staff or front of house staff for, yeah. uh, to serve. Um, yeah, that really changed the game. And since then, we've seen, you know, tap rooms, far out strip brew pubs and openings and really become the dominant service model. Um, in the, the, the pivot you mentioned earlier, too, I'm seeing and I'm seeing this in Europe where the trivia nights and that's just another social gathering, right? It's more than just showing up and drinking, you know? So, you know, the trivia games that they're having is they have, you know, opened back up, um, you know, from last year. So it's just been, you know, what kind of variety thing can you have to just be able to, you know, keep the crowds entertained? Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, I always, you know, try to point out, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to overspin this, right? Like a good example is there's these new, you know, experiential, you know, dart bars called Flight Club that have started popping up and, you know, there's nothing new about, darts and beer. Like, you know, when I was in college, that was, we went, we went to the bars and we played darts, but 
I think the the emphasis is slightly different. There's something very interesting in that that has been beneficial for craft that that has the the experience and the the alcohol have kind of flipped in which one people are seeking out. Right. Um, and and that that's been beneficial for places like Taproot that really do try to curate an experience along with their their tasty beverages. Nice, nice. I like that, and that's hopefully that fits the personality and the brand, right? That the local you know, microbrew is actually trying to, you know, represent itself by. So hopefully they're consistent with some of those other, you know, in the room offerings or out on the patio type of events that they're doing. So that's cool. They're great insights, Bart. Great. Thankful for this. Um, Bart Watson, chief economist for the Brewers Association. Cannot thank you enough for, you know, just the telltale signs and uh, giving us a little bit of crystal ball for what's coming in the U.S. So um, appreciate it, Bart. Thank you for that. Thanks for having me. A big shout out and credit to Mike Cardas for the opening guitar riff. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Beyond My Day Job. You'll find it on any of your favorite podcast feeds, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Anchor. And, good or bad, leave me a review. I'm genuinely interested in what you think. Have a great day.